In our own lab, I uh, was one of the first uh, to make induced pluripotent stem cells from myself because I wanted to see what it felt like to have a cell line that was identical to you in a culture dish. And I remember the the time uh, when the cells first, my cells, first differentiated into beating heart cells in a culture dish. And I thought, I just thought that was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Today we are opening a new and very important topic on our show that we have not yet discussed. We will be talking about stem cells and their application in personalized medicine. And I could not wish for a better guest to kick off this topic on our podcast. I am very happy to introduce to you Professor Jean Loring. Jean completed her PhD in Developmental Neurobiology at the University of Oregon. She got interested in stem cells pretty early in her career. She joined HANA Biologics at the dawn of stem cell biology, where she developed cell replacement therapies for Parkinson's disease. Jean moved through several very exciting appointments in industry and academia, and in 2004 she became a co-director of Stem Cell Research Center at Burnham Institute for Medical Research. Since 2007, Jean is a professor at Scripps Research in San Diego. Over the years, she contributed more than 120 research papers to the field. Apart from a very successful career in academia, Jean has always been at the forefront of the biotech and pharma industry. She was a senior director at Inside Genomics, where she developed gene expression microarrays to study Alzheimer's disease. She has also co-founded Arcos Biosciences a company that developed methods to derive human embryonic stem cells. Arcus Biosciences is now a part of Viasite, one of the leading regenerative medicine firms in the world. Gene's most recent venture is Aspen Neuroscience, a clinical stage pharmaceutical company that develops therapies for Parkinson's disease based on patients' own induced pluripotent stem cells. Well, This introduction could have been much longer have I mentioned all of Jean's accomplishments and accolades. So, Jean, it's my absolute pleasure and honor to welcome you on our show. It it is my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Jean, you have been working in the field of neurobiology and stem cells since the beginning of your career. What got you interested in stem cell research in the first place, and what keeps you motivated about this field until today? I think um, that uh, if you have a chance uh, when you're a graduate student to uh, look at several different labs and and, uh, discover all sorts of different things that you can do for your research, then you may, like like me, uh, fall in love with something and decide that you're simply can't leave it for the rest of your career. And for my, in my case, it was stem cells. I was working on neural crest stem cells um, as a graduate student. And I was fascinated by the ability of stem cells to differentiate into several different cell types. And yet I could culture them in a dish. And I was very interested in knowing how to make them go in one direction or another, which is uh, what they do naturally during embryogenesis. But it's a little more challenging to get them to do that in a culture dish. And essentially, everything I've done since then has had something to do with stem cells, how to use stem cells, how to understand stem cells, what to do with stem cells. Um, and everything that I've done since then has revolved around uh, stem cells. Perfect. Um, I think that's a very exciting field to be in specifically today. And there has been so much going on uh, in the last two decades. And I think uh, what is on everybody's mind today uh, are induced pluripotent stem cells. And uh, you have a lot of experience working with those. Can you explain to our audience what autologous induced pluripotent stem cells are and how can they be used 
to treat human diseases? Yes, um, this all started in 2006 when Shinya Yamanaka and his, his colleagues published a paper showing that you could uh, take ordinary fibroblasts, skin fibroblasts, and by adding four transcription factors to them transiently, not transiently to start with, but transiently later, um, you could get them to revert to a, a completely undifferentiated state, which is indistinguishable from embryonic stem cells, which are derived from the blastocyst stage of um, embryos before implantation, so very early in development. Uh, so um, pluripotent stem cells exist in us only for a few days during the earliest stages of human development. Um, precisely, uh, they can be derived from the blastocyst at about five days of development. That's before the embryo would implant into the uterus. So extremely early. So this was remarkable. What this, uh, the difference that this makes in the field, and in fact, in medicine in general, I think, is the fact that you can make uh, these induced pluripotent stem cells from anybody, any individual. In our own lab, I uh, was one of the first uh, to make induced pluripotent stem cells from myself because I wanted to see what it felt like to have a cell line that was identical to you in a culture dish. And I remember the the time uh, when the cells first, my cells, first differentiated into beating heart cells in a culture dish. And I thought, I just thought that was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. There's a there's a sort of personalized aspect to it that I think is is not um, appreciable unless you've uh, you're looking at you know the identity of the person who provided those cells. So the uh, the promise of iPS cells is uh, multifaceted. Uh, there are so many different ways of doing this. First, I think in the simplest stages, uh, simplest examples we can use iPS cells to essentially model a particular human being in a culture dish. In other words, the genomic material can be, um, can be accessed and uh, you can test, uh, for example, what the effect of a particular uh, genetic mutation or genetic variant in that person is on the cell's abilities uh, to differentiate into different cell types. Because in fact, pluripotent stem cells can make theoretically, for humans, every single cell type in the body. So um, you can see whether, for example, a heart defect that's caused by a genetic defect could be modeled in a culture dish. And then for that individual person, you could find out perhaps what drug might be useful for treating that inherited heart uh, defect. So that's one aspect of it, the cultures, just using the cultures. The other aspect of it, which is the one that we're, uh, we're using at Aspen, is to um, develop cell types that can be used to replace cells that have died because of a disease. In the case of Aspen, uh, we are studying Parkinson's disease. The cell type which uh, degenerates from Parkinson's disease is a dopamine neuron. So we've made dopamine neurons from iPS cells from people who have Parkinson's disease. And our goal is to be able to replace those cells in people who have the disease and essentially give them another 20 years of symptom-free life uh, while those cells replace the cells that have died. So the importance of autologous, I think, is becoming a lot more manifest as we... I. I have always had as we learn more about the immune system. And I've always, I decided long ago not to become an immunologist. And a lot of it had to do with the nomenclature and immunology, which is a lot more complex, I find, than the nomenclature in neurobiology. Neurobiology seems so simple to me compared to that. Um, and we're learning that um, the immune system has a great deal to do with a lot of diseases. Um, most uh, prevalently right now, the, the COVID response to COVID uh, depends on your immune system. And um, we know that neuroinflammation, which is part of the immune system, the cells that uh, have similar uh, roles in the brain, uh, are affected in neurodegenerative disease. 
So I wanted to avoid immune rejection altogether. Um, and that's why we decided to use autologous cells, which would match each individual rather than a single cell line that would have variable types, variable extent of rejection, and would require the people who receive the cells to live with immunosuppression for at least part of their lives. Understand. Yeah, it's very interesting and such an exciting story also about Aspen, and we'll discuss this now uh, in more detail. But just two comments on what you just said. I think this is really remarkable to see your own essentially heart that's right. <laughs> beating uh, in the tube. Uh, that, that's such a story. And uh, I think if science isn't motivational, inspirational, then I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I can also relate to your uh, to kind of choice of neurobiology uh, or immunology. I remember just from my bachelor's day, um, kind of studying immunology and reading this uh, Genway's textbook, which is a wonderful textbook, but just the sheer amount of protein names and cell types uh, in immunology is is pretty crazy. So it's hard to keep track with, yeah. with uh, everything there. Yeah. I'm glad you understand because I've, I've been trying in the last uh, year or so to become more uh, astute about immunology and I think I am probably at the undergraduate level at, at this point. Um, I doubt if I will ever be able to master it. Like, uh, But luckily, I have colleagues who are immunologists, and I can ask them any stupid question that I wish. Yeah, and, and the field is changing constantly, right? I think uh, we now have like cell types that didn't exist pretty much like in, in scientific literature 10 years ago. Uh, so it's, it's constantly evolving. Let's talk about Aspen. Um, you said already, uh, you described a little bit uh, what, what you are doing. What really motivated you to start this company and what were the main challenges to take um, this organization as a company off the ground? Yes. Yeah. It's very interesting, actually. I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't been in biotechnology before I went into academics. And um, I think I it would have been much more difficult because I had some feeling for what could be accomplished in a biotech company as opposed to what you could accomplish in academia. And, and I am probably more of an academic than anything else because I, I'd like to be able to, add, to answer, to seek answers to the questions that arise in my head in the middle of the night um, with experimental um, uh, approaches. But um, that isn't impossible in a biotech company. And in fact, I think it's important in a biotech company to keep that sort of desire to learn alive. Um, I started Aspen because the work that I've been doing in my lab at uh, Scripps Research Institute for the last 12 years, for 12 years, had um, become more and more uh, focused on a practical application for stem cells. We started out trying to understand pluripotent stem cells by using genomic analysis methods, then got into epigenetics and uh, started being interested in the epigenetics of, of differentiation of cells into different cell types. And I think um, once we had all those tools in place, we had um, sort of an equal weight of genomics and, and epigenetics expertise and uh, stem cell expertise which is the perfect recipe for starting a stem cell genomics company, which is what Aspen is. We uh, had been working on Parkinson's disease uh, for a while, and, and I should add that most of the support for our research came from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which was a remarkable uh, institution that funneled money into California labs for stem cell researchers to do things that they may not have had a lot of experience doing before. So that and um, a foundation, which is called the Summit for Stem Cell Foundation, uh, funded my lab's early work on developing a therapy for Parkinson's disease, which we started in 2012. So um, when it got to be 2018 and... Um, uh, we could see that CIRM, California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, funding from CIRM was going to be waning uh, because their first um, funding, uh, their first $3 billion was uh, almost uh, gone. Um, I thought that it would make sense to start looking for another way to do this work. 
and especially another way uh, that could allow us to take the work that we had done in the lab to the clinic and make a difference in treating people. Uh, the interesting thing, I think, um, about the time that we started was that it was a time when I started thinking about the people in my lab, many of whom had been with me for 10 years or more, and the fact that I had been supporting them with grant money all this time. There's no, at the Scripps Research Institute, there is no uh, money that comes to investigators unless they get, go out and get it themselves. And that is something that I was able to sustain for a very long period of time, but could see forward that I really didn't like the idea of having to do that and keeping all these people employed uh, for another, uh, another 10 years. So the company had the advantage of getting outside funding. So the, the idea is to get funding from uh, business ventures that are interested, venture capitalists that might be interested in, a, in the future of a biotech project. So part of my motivation was to keep the people in my, in my lab employed and, in fact, raise their salaries because they were worth a lot more than I could pay them in an academic institution and uh, give them stock options, which to me in biotech was one of the life-changing things, that if a biotech company is successful and you have options for their stock, you will end up making money, um, just a sort of a windfall at some point if the company does even moderately well. And uh, that's a great mechanism, I think, for you to uh, be motivated to think ahead and have a, an outcome that would be not only scientifically and intellectually um, appealing, but also financially appealing also. Um, so there were really the two reasons were the, the people and the fact that I, I thought at this point in my life that I should be uh, brave enough to try to take something to a clinic. Um, and that's essentially what it was. Uh, amazingly, our story, which is really what you do, it's called a pitch sometimes. And I have no, I have no reason to think I'm any better at anybody at this than anybody else. But the the pitch was uh, really based on my passion, and I think that's what made the venture capitalist interested in uh, in investing in my. They invested in me and my team. Um, the first investment we got was $6.5 million, which we got pretty easily. It was only a few months after we started the company that uh, some very good venture capital investors uh, agreed to invest what is a very small amount of money for them, but it was a huge amount of money for us. Uh, the lead in that investment, the, the um, VC firm that went forward first, is a group called Domain, which is in San Diego and had invested in a lot of companies that were incredibly successful. So we uh, we got a lot of, of help from them and other investors came in to bring us the 6.5 million. So that's when we decided to jump. Uh, with that money, we we moved to um, new quarters, uh, or actually, we started. We we moved to new. We'd already moved once um, with the foundation's help, but we moved again to new quarters, which were to be our long-term quarters for the company. And that's when I decided uh, to put all of my energy into this company, or at least most of my energy. I turns out I have energy and a few other ideas as well. But um, that 6.5 million led to an investment of 70 million, seven zero million dollars from essentially the same group of investors, but several other investors and uh, and really remarkable people. The the money for that investment for that investment came in just about the time that the um, pandemic was starting to become it started to become clear that the pandemic was going to have a big impact. So those investors were very brave uh, to go forward with this investment in spite of the fact that they, there was a good chance that the entire world was going to change, including biotechnology. Um, one of our investors pulled out, but none of the others did, and we got several new ones. So that's how it got launched. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of luck. Uh, timing is really important. Um, having a really good story is probably the most critical thing. Um, one thing I want to point out for those of you in the audience who might be thinking about starting a company 
is that um, you need to have a story more than anything else. And you need to to tell that story to people and get feedback from them because the story will get better as you get feedback. There were a lot of things that I hadn't thought of that were essential to starting the company uh, that I didn't know until I started explaining to people how I wanted to do it. So it's it's a very social sort of, um, of uh, method for uh, refining your ideas. Perfect. This is extremely insightful, and uh, I'm sure for our audience will be uh, very interesting to hear um, how how actually Aspen Neuroscience came to life. And and thanks a lot for for this detailed explanation. And I can only second you on uh, on the storytelling. This incredibly important in the world of venture capital. Also had a bit of experience with the, with their own startup. Um, putting a complex idea in simple terms is extremely important and it is very much appreciated and sometimes as scientists i think we tend to to overcomplicate uh, overthink and uh, make make things look more elaborate than they are and and sometimes you really need to to simplify it to to some basic components that anybody can understand and then you can uh, hold the uh, hold the people such as investors on board Yeah, and it's a good idea to try uh, try explaining these things to your children or to your parents because that's uh, usually the ultimate um, challenge in explaining why it is that, that what you are doing is important and there's a future in it. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot com. The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. Jean, now let's talk a little bit about um, the science behind Aspen. And I know that uh, this company, you essentially marry um, induced pluripotent stem cells and genomics. Can you explain uh, why genomics is really important for what you are doing and how you are leveraging um, the new developments in uh, in the field of DNA sequencing to make a stem cell therapy safer? Yes, that was really critical, and we started well. This is uh, we started well. We well, I was at Scripps um, when we started thinking about autologous cell therapy. Um, the main issues uh, that are quite obvious when you think about it is. How do you make the same cells uh, from different people's iPS cells? Because um, even though we thought and we were um, pushing the idea that all pluripotent stem cells were alike, um, we developed a tool called Pluritest, which was a, a gene expression profiling tool that we um, we let loose on the world in 2012, and it is still doing really well. It's a... Uh, It's a way of assuring yourself that your cells are pluripotent based simply on a gene expression profile and a machine learning algorithm that we came up with and remarkably patented. Um, so Pluritest is patented, but it's also free. We still offer it online at our, on our website. So that, um, that led us to believe that it was possible that there was a, that there were signatures, gene expression signatures, or maybe epigenetic DNA methylation signatures that would be common to um, cells that were differentiating in particular ways. And that's how we started on our second, um, our second tool, which is we call NeuroTest, which was developed in collaboration with um, my colleagues in, um, in Germany at, at Kiel. Uh, my former postdoc, Franz Joseph Mueller, Uh, was moved to a job at Kiel, and he uh, he's one of those people who knows a great deal about biology and 
and learned a lot about um, genomics so that he could use those tools to study biology. So he and I have been collaborators ever since 2005, I believe. Uh, we talk. We still talk every day, every week on the phone. We have an hour-long talk, Germany to um, to California, every Monday at about this time. So uh, Franz and uh, my colleagues at Aspen, or at Scripps, and then Aspen and I set out to um, define what the ideal cell type would be, or the cell differentiation stage of cells would be to uh, for transplants to Parkinson's disease. And this is the conundrum. When cells are differentiating, they go through a number of stages, including, and these are all epigenetic, um, and they're identifiable by gene expression profile. I really think of those two as surrogates for each other, although not precisely. The um, the gene expression profile of a cell as it be, as it starts differentiating uh, changes drastically, but in a um, and but in a sort of smooth fashion, so that the cell will will stop being pluripotent at some stage, and then become able to make only a few cell types. Um, it'll be it'll go through a multipotent stage. And then it will arrive at what we call the what embryologists call, and that's why I call it this, the determined stage, which it isn't the right, it has not differentiated yet, but it can't differentiate it into anything but a single cell type. And so what we were going for was the different the determined state of dopamine neurons. And we uh, use that genomic assessment as a means to develop our cell biology methods to bring the cells to that stage reliably and reproducibly from different iPS cell lines. So the gene expression profiling, which is essentially epigenetics, was really critical from the very beginning to make sure that the cells are at the right stage. And when I say the right stage, the reason why there is a right stage is that if you let the cells develop further in culture and they become real neurons, you can't transplant them any anymore because they're too fragile. If you transplant them too early, then they may revert to an earlier stage and become a cell type that you don't want. So there's a um, there's a magic um, a magic stage at which the cells are are very good at engrafting and then go on to differentiate into the right cell type. So one, the other problem um, with pluripotent stem cells is that they evolve in culture dishes. Um, it's sort of a Darwinian um, evolution. Um, if you have five culture dishes of, I, of iPS cells in, a cult, in uh, your incubator, then if you grow them as separate lines for uh, a few months, you'll discover that their genomes have changed that there's selection for different um, variations, different mutations that arise spontaneously when the cells divide, when they, they replicate their DNA. And we uh, discovered that one of those changes that was quite common was a mutation that altered uh, P53, which is uh, extremely important because P53 is mutated in 50% or more of cancers. And obviously you don't wanna transplant cells that have the potential to form cancers. We started looking at this, um, we published our first paper on discovery of this in 2015. It was the result of a, a very long project to see how um, pluripotent stem cells evolved as they were growing in culture. We also discovered uh, somewhat earlier by doing SNP genotyping um, that certain duplications, um, deletions, and, and areas of loss of heterozygosity would repeatedly show up in stem cells that we got from other people. That was one of the interesting, one of the most, most fun things was to get pluripotent stem cells that had been grown in many, many different labs, hundreds of them, and analyze them by our, the genomic methods that we were using and discovering how diverse they were. So we, had, we introduced into our, our quality control um, me methods uh, to make autologous cells a number of steps in which we could check to make sure that their genomes hadn't changed in any way that would be deleterious, um, either to the cells differentiating or to the person who received the cells. So we started introducing whole genome sequencing, which um, 
as I'm sure most of you know, has become much simpler to do and to analyze in recent years. Uh, we still do SNP genotyping, which is very fast. It's a really fast turnaround, and we can look for really large changes. But um, we always perform um, whole genome sequencing, which is is um, perhaps overkill in some people's minds. Um, you could do exome sequencing. Um, but we figured that since whole genome sequencing was possible, that we would go ahead and do it. And that would allow us to look for mutations that perhaps would not were not obviously uh, detrimental because they occurred in non-coding regions. Uh, but there's more and more evidence that um, genes, uh, that, that elements exist in non-coding uh, non-coding parts of the genome that have tremendous impact on the fate of cells and the ability of cells to differentiate um, in many different ways. I mean, the simplest example of this, of course, would be enhancers. So I think it became clear that our genomics tools were really key to not only producing um, a good cell type for transplantation, but also to be able to do that over and over and over again. Um, and so that the cells would be um, as safe as would be possible for, uh, for a, a cell replacement therapy. Perfect. Yeah, it's a big challenge and it's nice to see like how you solve it at Aspen. And uh, I guess there are a lot of other challenges in uh, bringing that uh, differentiated um, cells uh, at the right point of their differentiation cycle into the body of the patient. So what are the other milestones or the other challenges that you would have to overcome in order to place those cells uh, into the first patients in the clinical trials? Yes, and so this is where um, my, learning term, uh, my learning curve gets steeper and steeper. So um, we brought together a number of people, um, including some advisors who are surgeons to advise us about how to deliver these cells to the brain. Um, we were really fortunate. I think one reason I've been so optimistic about this was that there had already been uh, studies done in the uh, 90s, some of which I was well aware of because I was at HANA Biologics, um, to use fetal uh, dopamine neurons uh, to transplant directly into the part of the brain that normally gets dopamine. It's called the striatum. And people had worked out ways to deliver those cells, uh, those fetal cells. And in some cases, people got better. I mean, it was pretty amazing. It was the closest thing to a miracle that I've certainly seen, although there have been lots of those since then. But it was pretty amazing that you could just put dopamine neurons into this part of the brain and have the, um, the problems of Parkinson's disease, the symptoms, which is uh, a lot of the, the problems with movement, um, go away with time instead of getting worse, which was what was expected. So we knew where to put the cells. Uh, we learned from surgeons about um, how to uh, deliver the cells. We planned to deliver the cells using MRI um, and uh, MRI-guided catheter that will essentially slip through a, a small hole that is drilled in the, in the skull. And it can be tr tracked as it goes into the, uh, the striatum. And the cells can be released with a tracer that allows you to be sure that you put them in the right place. And remarkably, and we have gene therapies to, to thank for this, this kind of thing is no longer has to be invented, it already exists. Um, people have been delivering gene therapies, um, not necessarily to the brain. None of these have been approved yet by the FDA, but there's a great deal of experience and there have been a lot of clinical trials. There will probably be um, a lot more of this kind of gene therapy, that is gene therapy delivery of, of um, genes to the brain um, in the near future for um, neurological disease. So we had those things um, handled. Um, we did have to think very seriously about cost because the um, venture capitalists especially were concerned. And I think if you hear talks by people who are using, uh, who are planning similar strategies, but using single cell lines, allogeneic therapy instead of autologous, they will tell you that um, one of the greatest uh, challenges that 
they decided not to try to overcome was cost. So we focused on cost, and we've um, we've managed through small scale manufacturing because we don't need to grow the cells. We don't need a billion cells for a lot of reasons. We need a few million cells, and with our uh, our quality control measures along the way in the manufacturing of the cells, we can um, we spend very little money. I mean, that's essentially what I can tell you. Because of the small scale, then we can, if if a culture that we're differentiating is not going well by our genomic assessments, we can just throw it away and start over. And we haven't invested very much. Whereas if we had to grow a billion cells from each patient, then all sorts of problems would arise, including the... Um, the evolution of the cells uh, in those uh, large vats. Um, it is it is inevitable that you will discover mutations, um, and they will be selected for um, if you grow keep growing the cells for long periods of time, as we as we showed. And essentially, it's lots of cell divisions. It's not it's cell time, not real time. So um, so we have um, solved that. Obviously, it'll become. Uh, better in the future. Um, right now, we're switching from research-grade reagents to uh, GMP, good manufacturing practice uh, reagents that have been tested for all the things you don't want to have in your cell cultures. Um, and there are a number of them that we need to switch to. So we're in a phase right now, the, the preclinical or the, um, the, the pre-IND studies in which we're testing the ability to switch over to a, a product that can be manufactured and used in humans. So that's where the intensity of the work is going on right now, as well as testing the safety of the cells in animal models, uh, rat models, long-term safety. Uh, we're asking whether the cells will form tumors or whether they'll migrate away from the site where you transplant them. Um, as well as doing uh, further efficacy studies that um, allow us to, to sort of hone the, the uh, right stage for uh, the maximum benefit, uh, the cells after they're being transplanted. So everything right now is what's going on. Perfect. That's amazing to hear. And uh, it's great that, as you mentioned, there are already sufficient tools that can help you deliver those cells to the brain um, and they've been tested for for other therapies you mentioned uh, gene therapies and what you just said uh, for me actually sounded a bit counterintuitive and was a great learning about this difference between um, autologous allogeneic uh, stem cell therapy costs uh, intuitively um, one would think that allogeneic therapy should be cheaper just because you have one cell line uh, that you will just propagate and can differentiate multiple times uh, but i think it's a great point that you make that you don't need that many cells for for autologous th therapy and you have much better control because you don't propagate that line endlessly um, hence accumulating that mutations that can be detrimental for for the patient later that's right. Yeah, it was it it was it was uh, not intuitive to us either. We had to really sort it out because um, I, there was there was so much in this field that is. I mean, if you if you ask uh, ten researchers who are interested in clinical applications of stem cells, they will probably tell you it's too expensive to do autologous therapies. But we would love to if it weren't so expensive. So when we actually figured out the costs, we realized we could do it for very little um, expense, and it would be comparable to allogeneic therapies. understand. And what do you think uh, could be the best setup uh, when the stem cell therapies, autologous stem cell therapies, will reach the critical scale once we have those positive outcomes from the clinical trials and um, these therapies will become FDA approved and will be used in clinics? Obviously, it's still hard to, to produce those because you would need to manufacture them kind of on-site or you would need to transport the patient. So how do you see the future of stem cell therapies, uh, ideally post-approval post for, for most of the therapeutics that are now in the development? Yeah, well, it seems like a minor issue now that the Pfizer vaccine is being transported to the uh, all over the US and of course it's already um, in Europe um, to keep them we can freeze the cells though I mean that that pretty much solves the problem of distribution um, they're they um, they are very um, 
good at being frozen and thawed. Um, obviously, you have to know what you're doing so that knowledge needs to be uh, transferred to other sites from the original site. Right now, we plan to make the, um, the iPS cells in-house so that we can um, oversee them more carefully. And it doesn't take that many people to do that either. Um, we, have, we started making iPS cells um, as soon as Yamanaka's paper was published in 2007. So as I said, one of mine, mine was the second cell line to be made. So we've had a long experience with making and, and you know, like playing with um, iPS cell lines. So I want to keep that in house with the same people if possible uh, for as long as we can. Um, Aspen does have a GMP suite um, that it, uh, it's a small one. Um, that is adequate, though, for making the iPS cells for the planned phase one and starting the phase two cl uh, clinical trials. Um, the outsourcing, I've never been fond of outsourcing, um, mainly because I think it some, uh, some things can be outsourced. Um, obviously, sequencing can be outsourced because there's embedded quality control. But things that are a bit more complicated, like uh, differentiating cells in a particular cell type is more difficult to outsource because you don't you have to not only have the um, the the paper in front of you that tells you what to do, but you have to have some intuition and some judgment because there will be things that that happen that you need to deal with that maybe aren't written down. There aren't things that have happened before. So it's it's more difficult. Um, we're lucky in that there are people now in in um, places that do contract manufacturing, who have their roots in um, in stem cell laboratories and academic pluripotent stem cell laboratories, so they understand what I'm talking about. Um, we will probably outsource the differentiation stages uh, very closely, um, monitoring at least at first. Um, and expanding from there because it, uh, but you know, it's still in the cards. We might end up making our own uh, differentiated product as well. We may acquire a, a um, contract manufacturing company. It it really is. It's the most important thing right now is to have options um, that so we can we know that there are other pathways we can take if if circumstances change. And luckily, because. Um, the lab had already been set up and the funding was already in. Uh, Aspen has been able to glide fairly well through um, the COVID pandemic. Um, obviously, there have been lots of, of challenges because of um, getting supplies, uh, having uh, people be tested to work in the lab, um, this sort of distance communication. All of that, of course, has slowed everything down. Um, but the fact that we survived that, um, yeah, I think, speaks well of our ability to adapt to, to things that may happen in the future. Definitely. And speaking about the future, what we like to ask uh, our guests on this show is where do you see your field in the next 10 years? What would be the three developments that you would like to see happening or you expect to happen in the next 10 years in the field of induced pluripotent stem cells? Yeah, I can do a couple of different versions of that, as you can imagine. Um, right now, I think uh, drug screening in pharma companies is going to be one of the, the biggest uh, uses of iPS cells. I've um, I've have I have friends in pharma companies, and it's been very hard for them to establish iPS cell programs, uh, mostly because um, they're you know they're cells. This is not what they're really good at. They're good at at testing animals, and they're good at making small molecules. This is unusual. The cells that they've been growing before have been vats of Cho cells, or or three 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 cells, or uh, 293 cells for specific purposes, not something as delicate as iPS cells. So now that people, as I said, are moving from academic labs into industry, they bring that expertise with them. And that means that industries will be able to develop uh, drug screens using iPS cells. Um, I mean, it, there were the early on using beating heart cells, it's been possible to apply drugs and see how they respond, for example. And I know that's a greatly expanding area. Um, in pharma. So the next step after that is organoids, which I'm quite fond of. Um, 
but they're tricky, just like everything else in this field. Um, we sent, um, I had a, a great opportunity to be sort of driven um, by curiosity to start making organoids at Aspen uh, because we got involved in a partnership with um, people who were sending, who were able to send cells to the International Space Station. So last December, just almost exactly a year ago, I went to Cape Canaveral to watch the um, the SpaceX rocket that took our our organoids up into space, and uh, they spent an, um, a month on the space station, came back, and they came back right at COVID time, and so we got to I got to put some of them in a culture dish and show that they were great. These little organoids of dopamine neuron precursors they survived and they thrived in in um, low gravity i was really pleased with that but it made us work out methods for making reliable organoids and i think organized organized research was um is a, is getting much better now and um trying to put multiple cell types together in a little uh, a little ball um, or some other format um, is going to be extremely valuable for um, sort of creating a, another way to study the effect of, of drugs or the effect of treatments um, on something that is closer to, for example, a human brain or a human lung than cells that are attached to a culture dish. So those are my first, That's I think that was just my first, wasn't it? Um, obviously, cell replacement therapies are going to be um, better and better. As soon as one gets approved, there'll be others that get approved. I'm absolutely certain of that. And I am, I'm concerned with um, the proliferation of mesenchymal stem cell um, therapies or, the, or attempts to develop therapies using these cells that are... Um, stromal cells you get from bone marrow or from fat or from some other tissue because they aren't capable of making all the different cell types in the body like pluripotent stem cells are. Um, but meanwhile, the FDA has, um, our FDA in the U.S. has learned how to deal with applications for stem cell uh, therapies. So I think um, because of this mesenchymal stem cell um, explosion. And so I think that is in our favor, that we will have a better time. Um, they will know what to worry about and how to communicate to us. So I think stem cell therapies, um, replacement therapies, are not more than a couple of years off. Um, uh, Parkinson's disease may be allogeneic, may be autologous, depending on circumstances. Um, some other areas in which you want to replace cells are more challenging, um, like um, heart, uh, replacing heart muscle, which is a very, very big market, a very big need, but has its own intrinsic challenges because of the nature of the heart and the nature of heart injury. Uh, but I think those will creep into existence over time. And obviously, um, uh, this is another area, and that would be delivering things via stem cells. I think one of the best um, versions of that would be the the therapy for um, hemoglobin um, problems for for um, uh, Tay-Sachs disease for sickle cell anemia, in which you can uh, target uh, hematopoietic stem cells and then hopefully artificially made hematopoietic stem cells, which will be easier to deal with, um, and then infuse them into people. And CAR T therapies will become different too when you can do an autologous um, iPS cell derived CAR T um, therapy for cancers. So that's where I see it going. I can't say what order they're going to happen in, but I'm absolutely certain in the next 10 years, all of those will happen. And probably a couple of other interesting things that I haven't thought of yet. Yeah, let's let's hope for that. And the future sounds very and very exciting. Uh, and um, just hearing from you that you already send the organoids to space, they survived, <laughs> made it uh, through. Uh, that that's very inspiring. And again, it's just a testament to what science can do and can accomplish. And this is great. And maybe on that optimistic note, um, I know that a lot of young researchers are listening to to this podcast and. Research is not necessarily the easiest career path nowadays. 
What uh, words of the encouragement or which one advice would you give to to young researchers and especially to to young female researchers who are just starting their career in in science? Yeah, I wish I could tell female researchers that it, it that everything is now as smooth as it has been for male researchers all these years. Unfortunately, that's not quite the case, but it is much better than it used to be. And and I can I can certainly speak to that myself from my own experiences. What I the advice I give to people um, always is to focus on what you're good at and continue to share that information. And what I mean is specifically If you go to a biotech company, then you need to make sure that you can publish your work. And the reason for that is that um, if you don't publish, then the credit for your work will go to the company and not to you. And you really need to distinguish yourself um, in the areas that you're good at. You need to have a, a CV that says, or a resume that says, um, I'm the first author on this paper that was uh, was transformative rather than I worked for a company that developed this transformative uh, therapy. And I know if you come out of academia that many of you will be the ones who do that sort of thing. And I want to make sure you get credit for it. And that's especially important for women um, because I think it is very easy. It's very easy to get distracted by other things in your life. Um, And if uh, you don't publish, then the, the work that you do, it's such a great opportunity to publish because that means what you have done lives after you. It's like writing a book. It's like, um, like designing a building. Um, it is a concrete thing that you can point to and say, I've accomplished. So that's the most important thing that I can advise people to do. Perfect. Jean, thanks a lot. And thank you so much for responding to my email and joining this podcast today. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and uh, hearing about all of your insights that you collected throughout your career on the stem cells and on the future of biotechnology. It was extremely inspirational. So I'm sure our listeners uh, will love this episode. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver the best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T And engage with us on social media, where we regularly share the news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. Or use our handle, pmedcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.